In the fall of 2007, a 23-year-old man went to see a doctor in Padua, a city near Venice in the north of Italy. He had a blood clot in his leg. The whole case was unusual. The man was young and healthy, and he didn't take drugs. It turns out that the patient, whose name is still a secret, had a genetic mutation in his DNA, something so rare that it had actually never been seen before. Yeah, it made a big impression on the doctor who saw him that day, Dr. Paolo Simeone. I immediately realized the importance of this uh, mutation in a completely different context, that of gene therapy. Gene therapy is an emerging area of medicine generating a lot of excitement right now. If it works, it could transform the lives of people who suffer from thousands of different conditions caused by tiny abnormalities in their DNA. It turns out that young man in Padua had walked into Dr. Simeone's office with a possible cure. You see, his blood clotted too easily. A protein responsible for blood clotting was too active or supercharged. But about 26,000 people around the world suffer from an opposite condition, hemophilia B. When most of us bleed, our blood naturally forms a clot, so the bleeding stops. But this natural mechanism doesn't happen in people with severe hemophilia, which means that even with a relatively minor injury, people with this condition could suffer from serious internal bleeding. I was very, very, very excited by this fact that this might be a real treatment for hemophilia B. Hemophilia B, the disease that famously plagued European royal families for generations. Thanks to Paolo Simeone's discovery back in 2007, scientists have been working on a new treatment that is now being tested on patients with hemophilia B. And unlike the frequent hospital visits and infusions patients have had to put up with their whole lives, this is potentially a one-time treatment. Hi, I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Donnie Bloomfield. And this week on Decrypted, we're taking you to the frontiers of science where we're starting to see the first effective gene therapies, treatments that could rewrite the lives of people living with genetic disease. We'll follow one patient in particular, Jay Conduros, on his journey through an experimental trial to effectively get rid of his hemophilia. The potential cures are setting the stage to one day upset the $10 billion hemophilia market and even the gigantic $114 billion rare disease market, dominated by genetic conditions like hemophilia. A small number of companies are on the brink of transforming the space. We'll go inside the lab at one such startup to explain the biotech breakthrough and how it's changed Jay's life. Plus, we'll take a look at the challenging road ahead. So, Donnie, you're a biotech reporter. In simple terms, let's explain to our listeners, and frankly to me, what gene therapy actually is. Genes are the underlying code of life. Humans have about 20,000 genes in their DNA. And the different genes, they produce different kinds of proteins, which turn out into all different kind of characteristics that show up in our body, like our hair color, eye color, or how likely we are to get breast cancer. By the same token, they can cause real problems when they're messed up or when we have a bad mutation in our body. And sometimes people might be missing a particular gene or they might have a mutation 
That means their bodies don't operate normally. So the idea is gene therapy can fix it, or are you replacing a gene? The idea is, let's give these people a good gene, a properly functioning gene. That allows them to effortlessly start producing the proteins that they need from having the good gene in their body. So being a tech guy, I think about this like altering a little piece of computer code to make, make the computer function differently. Is that sort of right? So in this case, it's not altering a code. It's giving people a new code. And when you give people that new code, they can run that. And you can think about a cell almost like running a piece of software, which ultimately turns into these proteins. Of course, there is a big difference. You can't just try out whatever kind of code you want on people because even a little change can make a huge difference. It could hurt someone, it could kill someone. You have to be super cautious so you know exactly what different code you're putting into someone's body. So this concept of gene therapy has been around for a while now, right? Yeah, but it hasn't gone mainstream. So far, there have been very few large trials in people, and most studies so far haven't gone right. They've failed. But recently, these treatments have started making their way to real patients, like Jay. As soon as I had any knowledge of anything, I knew that I had hemophilia because it had been diagnosed by the time I was born. So actually, technically speaking, I'm not missing the factor nine. The factor nine my body creates is creates a lot of it, but it's misshapen. It doesn't work properly. Factor nine. We're going to hear a lot more about that today. It's a protein found in our blood. If we get a cut and start bleeding, factor nine is a key part of the system in our bodies that stops the bleeding. The fact that Jay's genes don't produce a functioning version of this protein has had a major impact on this life. Yeah, Jay grew up in Canada, Montreal, and Toronto. He says his childhood was pretty normal. Montreal days were just your typical uh, 60, 70 family life, I guess. The father working, mother homemaking, and the kids doing what kids do. But my very earliest memories are definitely the Volkswagen Peace Love Vans and uh, that 60s vibe. I think it's in my soul for sure. Jay, everything was normal, except his hemophilia. How would you explain hemophilia to people, if you did? Um, Believe it or not, I've never broached the topic. For me personally, I've avoided any talk about it, or to the point of leaving a room, (laughs) if if the discussions have got that way. As a kid, Jay's friends would play hockey in the street, or wrestle for fun. But because of Jay's hemophilia... What would have been regular scrapes and bruises for one of his friends would mean Jay's mother rushing him to the hospital. Those things, even as a kid, were terrifying to me. Those things would, you know, end up putting you out of commission, kind of for, you know, going to school for a couple weeks at a time or even more. And then you'd be limping for another month recovering. So so since you'd know what's going to happen... Those kind of injuries were, yeah, they get head towards being kind of terrifying. Today, Jay is 53 years old, and he isn't playing hockey in the streets anymore. Hemophilia has become something he learned to live with. He and his wife, Yolanta, run a bakery called Nougat in Kitchener, Ontario. Hi, Lacey. It is Nougat Bakery. Jay speaking. Can I put in an order for tomorrow? 
Almonds blanched meal, 25 pounds, one box, almonds blanched. For years, Jay has managed his hemophilia with a portable kit he keeps with him, so he can give himself an infusion of the Factor IX protein when he's worried about a bleed. Despite that, a single bump, even if properly treated, could still swell up with internal bleeding and turn into a medical nightmare. For example... But just a couple of years ago, I, I ended up, I was shoveling snow and, and the shovel caught the, the asphalt and the tip of the shovel, which rotated the handle sideways into my thigh. An everyday incident like this could be really dangerous for Jay. I knew that was going to cause a, a bruise for sure, so I actually uh, went home and gave myself a treatment right away. That's the Factor Nine infusion kit Jay keeps at home. And then ended up being in the hospital for 10 days. And um, I was kind of uh, on, on steady dose factor nine treatment for the next month, I think, you know, doctor's orders. And um, well, it's on crutches, I think, for another three weeks after I got to the hospital and then on a cane and for another three months. And I think it was another three months after that before you'd say I was back to the shape I was in before. I just can't imagine how disruptive to his life hemophilia has been. I would imagine, Donnie, that he he really leapt at the opportunity when doctors told him uh, they could cure his hemophilia. Well, I don't think anyone was promising a cure, but a year ago, Jay's doctor did tell him about an experimental trial with a company called Spark Therapeutics, and they're based in Philadelphia. The goal of the trial seemed outlandish. Spark was testing a new kind of therapy, like you said, that would require one visit to the hospital. And maybe after just one visit, Jay would see the symptoms of his hemophilia start to disappear. Are you telling me that you can have a disease your whole life that causes so much drama and you have to have these injections that come with their own risks of infection, of, you know viruses, but all of a sudden you can walk into some building, sit in a chair, have someone put an intravenous needle in you for maybe an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, and drip a clear bag of liquid into you. And that's it. Pull the needle out and go home. After talking it over with his wife, he decided to sign up. And we sat down, we talked about it, and I thought it was a great idea. Uh, There are no huge side effects on that. I'm like, you have nothing to lose. The the word that comes into my mind, I don't want to even say it, but but you could say it's it's a joke. The company behind the trial is called Spark Therapeutics. The company has been around for four years and was born when a man called Steve Altshuler, then the CEO of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, asked a consultant, Jeff Morazzo, to come to the hospital and see. Did any of the hospital's research have commercial potential? And I ended up uh, agreeing with Steve that I would spend about three months roaming the halls of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, meeting with scientists and clinicians and people even working on health information technology. That's Jeff, who's now the CEO at Spark. And one of the last conversations I had was with a woman named Dr. Katherine High. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Kathy High. And I'm the President and Chief Scientific Officer of Spark Therapeutics. And our one-hour conversation, which I had scheduled with her, ended up going about seven hours. Uh, And as they say, the rest is history. 
As it turns out, Jeff's timing couldn't have been better. I was getting cold calls from investors in my office, and I didn't want to talk to investors. I wanted to do my work. And as I was sitting there talking to him, I was thinking, wow, if somebody like this were involved, he could take those calls. (laughs) Donnie, you went to go meet Jeff and Kathy in Philadelphia the other week, right? Yeah. So Sparks Labs and offices are in a University of Pennsylvania medical building. It's a swanky tower of glass and steel. The bottles sit in the roller rack, and then there are rollers here which turn it around. Okay, the media goes in Kathy has been doing research in this area for years, not just in gene therapies, but in hemophilia specifically. Her earliest projects were looking into the proteins that make blood clotting possible, and she helped guide patients through the 1980s, which was a devastating time when most hemophilia patients in the U.S. contracted HIV because the factor therapy became infected with the virus. It was a very intense time. We uh, started to evaluate all the people in the clinic, and it turned out that nearly everyone was positive. But we didn't know what it meant, and the, and the virologists didn't know what it meant either. My first thoughts were, um, I, I don't remember too much because it's very, it's a panicky feeling because all of a sudden you're in this a group of people who are um, being hunted down by this virus. Many of your patients died? Many of, many of my patients died during that time. In the 1990s and early 2000s, Kathy was involved in some of the very first hemophilia gene therapy trials. How did those therapies go? Well, early on, some of the issues was where to actually try and deliver the gene. So Kathy tried to deliver the gene to muscle, but it just kept making factor nine, but it didn't get into the blood. So that wasn't helpful. And then they tried to get it into the liver, which is where they ended up going. But when they did that, the immune system responded. Were there negative side effects for the patients that were in those trials? Not significantly. So far, these hemophilia trials have been really safe. So walk us through how this current trial works. What exactly is the treatment Spark is testing? The basic idea here is you want to deliver a gene, which you can think of as like an instruction manual, to the right cells that they can make the right protein. And they do that all by needing to start with a transportation device. And in this case, they take a virus which sounds really scary. That does sound... (laughs) Virus does not sound like something you want in your body. Yeah, that's right. But what they did was they found a harmless one. They found these naturally occurring harmless viruses. And you can think of them like, you know, a biological transportation system. The idea is that they have this factor IX gene in them. They swarm into the body. There are billions of them. They swim through the blood. And they're designed so that they're going to laser in and hone in on those liver cells, which is kind of the body's factory for making things. Is it too early right now to draw any conclusions about Spark's trial? Well, they've actually had fairly encouraging results. It is small, but they've shown that in 10 people, they can create pretty high levels of factor nine. And that's the clotting thing that that these people need. And what they've been able to find was that nine out of 10 people haven't had any bleeds since they took this therapy. Is Kathy confident uh, that this will work? She is pretty confident. She told me that, you know, if you can do organ transplantation, she doesn't know why you can't do gene transplantation, too. But there have been years of hard work and setbacks to get to this point, to be fair. 
There were many gene therapy trials in the decade between 1999 and 2009, and about as many failures. A young man, Jesse Gelsinger, died in one such trial run by a colleague of Kathy's at Penn. Do I remember when I found out about the, the death of Jesse Gelsinger? I do remember. Kathy couldn't have known at the time, but Jesse's death in 1999 would upend the gene therapy field for a generation. Suddenly, investors and pharmaceutical companies didn't want to touch this controversial field. Because I had been to speak the night before at the Hemophilia Association of New Jersey. And I had been talking about uh, the work that we were doing in gene therapy. And the next morning, the director of the Hemophilia Association of New Jersey called me because it was in the newspaper. It was a shock. Interestingly, Jay says he actually takes comfort in the fact that Spark is associated with the University of Pennsylvania, where Jesse died. If, if there's ever a bunch of people to go with, it's the people who, who um, got surprised in the past and learned the hardest lessons. The patients taking part in Kathy's gene therapy studies were safe. But for years, her research kept running into a different problem. The body's natural immune system would detect the cells carrying the new genes and wipe them out. Why did they do that? Did they identify it as a pathogen? Yeah, so what happened was that they found out that when you put in these virus-like particles, maybe unsurprisingly, the body reacts. When we get the flu or we get some other kind of virus, our body will respond and it will see this as a potential threat. So the immune system came by, took out all those cells, left everything else alone, and thought, hey, I did a great job on this. So it doesn't sound like that's what Kathy was hoping for. No. But then there was a breakthrough. Let's go back to that doctor in Padua, Italy, we heard at the beginning of the show. The doctor had found a patient with a random mutation in the gene that makes the protein factor 9. This mutation is really the tiniest change. A single letter of the genome, mutated, changed from a G to an A. That tiny change made his factor 9 protein way more effective than normal. We still don't fully understand why. And that sounds like a potential game-changer for someone like Jay with hemophilia B. Because the supercharged protein is more effective than normal, you need less of it. And having a smaller amount of gene therapy product, those little things that are derived from viruses entering the body, that means there's less chance of triggering the immune system to attack the foreign elements, which is what killed the cells in Kathy's earlier trials. So I can't wait to hear, did it work? So far, it's encouraging. Eight out of the 10 men who have been infused in this study have not had an immune response. So two of them did, but Spark thinks it can basically control that kind of immune response. And it's used steroids to try and tamp down the body's immune system, which has worked out pretty well for at least one of those patients. The other one is still producing a pretty steady amount of factor nine. Okay, so far we've learned about this new therapy from a company called Spark to treat people with hemophilia. We've learned it's been pretty effective in the very early tests, and it gets around some roadblocks that have held back other gene therapies. So, Donnie, what's next? So, to move the therapy to a broader group of patients, Spark and its partner, the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, will have to test it in final-stage studies, and they're called Phase 3. 
Spark CEO Jeff Marazzo says it's now in Pfizer's hands as to when that trial will begin. This quarter, we uh, are also conducting a uh, meeting with the FDA under what's called a breakthrough therapy designation, which we received for the, the our hemophilia B product candidate. Um, and those discussions, as well as subsequent internal discussions with Pfizer, will, that they will ultimately determine what steps they want to take forward. Those bigger and longer trials will be necessary to make sure that the therapy works on a larger scale, that it's safe, and that it will actually continue lasting. So this is not a done deal? No, not by any means. Tons of therapies that go into these kind of trials can still fail to show widespread success. Or there could be some kind of dangerous side effect that didn't show up before. So I'm really curious, Donnie, if this shows promise with, with hemophilia B, as it, as it seems to be showing, what kind of other diseases can we address with gene therapy? Yeah, so Spark is actually working right now. They finished a phase three study looking at this rare form of blindness that's caused by uh, a genetic defect. And they're actually moving toward trying to get that approved by the FDA. And there are other companies that are working on things like sickle cell disease. Um, There's a small group in China that's working on certain forms of cancer. Are there any ethical concerns that have slowed down the adoption of these techniques? I mean, questions about whether we are, you know, tinkering with, uh, you know, Mother Nature or, or the design of our bodies? Well, I think in this case, it's not such an ethical concern. For one thing, you're not changing people's genes. You're giving them a new one, and you're giving them one that will help them live just a healthier and better life. And in a sense, we're already tinkering with Mother Nature when we're giving people Factor Nine, which is part of what's keeping them alive in the first place. So just to be clear, they, don't, they can't pass on the new gene as if it was their, their original gene, right? They don't, it doesn't, this treatment doesn't change their genetic makeup. Yeah, that's right. So the basic idea here is it doesn't incorporate, it doesn't get into the the rest of the genome. It's not like it's going into any of the cells that like sperm or egg that would eventually get passed down. Okay, I got it. So um, obviously in, in Decrypted, we, we deal with businesses and the te- technology's effect on businesses. So obviously treating hemophilia is, is a large lucrative market. What do, what do these gene therapies mean for you know healthcare and the businesses that are pursuing these kinds of cures? There are a number of companies like Shire and Nova Nordisk and Pfizer itself, which make a ton of money from selling therapies to hemophilia patients. And those therapies do a lot of good. But of course, if you had a gene therapy that would be a one-time shot cure, then they would be losing a lot of market share. Oh, but it's an interesting point that they could end up undermining their own businesses. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's how these companies like to think about these things where, you know, they want to make the next generation. And in this case, the next generation is really the hope is a one time cure. But I think that it's fair to say we're not there yet. And they're still planning on making billions of dollars from hemophilia patients for the foreseeable future. Are are there any other gene therapies like this that are close to being commercialized? Yeah, so pharma giant GlaxoSmithKline actually has a gene therapy on the market now in Europe for um, a super rare disease called bubble boy disease. That's the kind of common name for it. It's only approved in Europe, and it costs more than $600,000. But the idea is that it's a one-time shot that could replace an enzyme therapy that costs like $300,000 a year. So how excited should we be? 
Well, I think the science is super cool and it's super exciting and we are seeing results, but we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves either. We're still in the early days here. And even though there is at least, you know, one patient that's out more than a year with this spark gene therapy that's seeing it work for them, we still need to see what the long term effects are and how it could work in other diseases. And I would imagine there are some regulatory hurdles as well. Yeah, I mean, of course, they're going to have to succeed in their final stage study, which is a real difficult hurdle to get over. And of course, when you're working with regulators, you know, there's a big process ahead of them. But the hope is that for a rare disease, those things can move quickly. And if they really prove that they work, that this thing can move forward. Before we wrap up our show today, what are Jay and his wife Yolanta up to now? So when I met them in Philadelphia, Jay was about to have his appointment. He was going to find out how much Factor 9 was actually being active in his body. And they found out the next day that he had 40% of normal Factor 9 activity, which maybe doesn't sound great, but for someone like Jay, that's pretty amazing. And that's somewhere where you can really have a basically completely normal life. And it's showing. I mean, they're feeling a lot more free, and Jay even feels a little reckless. Here's his wife, Yolanta. Because we always traveled with the with the package with the Factor Nine, uh, just in case if something happens. Every time when we were traveling, and this time it was the first time when he said, "Maybe I should not take it." That's a huge change. That's like hundred eighty degree change uh, degrees change in his behavior by saying that. It's going to sound really stupid, but. We only have so much space in our luggage, so I was thinking, well, if we're going to New York in a few days, maybe Yolanta needs more space for her shopping. And from scientific point of view, yes, definitely, it was interesting. It was something, and I said, okay, I have a GMO husband now. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Record a voice message and send it to us at decrypted at bloomberg.net. Or I'm on Twitter at Donnie Bloomfield. And I'm at Brad Stone. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating and a review. It really helps more listeners find our show. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari, Liz Smith, and Magnus Henriksen. A special thanks to our reporter, Shelley Hagan, for her help with today's show. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye.